On this episode of NC Raw, we take the show on the road once again. This time, we visit Statesville, North Carolina to attend the Mindful Recovery and Wellness Symposium that was hosted by Enlightened Recovery. We were invited out to participate in the social media impact panel. However, we decided to just make it a podcast, and that's what we have for you today. The panel was made up of a, an amazing group of folks. My um, dude, Jay Harris, who is the Collegiate Recovery Coordinator over at East Carolina University, sat on the panel and talked with us. Cole Spooner, who is the founder of Survivor Culture. And also Amy Dressner, who is the author of an awesome book titled My Fair Junkie. We had a, a pretty insightful conversation um, talking about how we use social media, both personally and professionally, to support our recovery um, and kind of what's out there. And it was just a, it was an awesome conversation. It was a ton of fun to do. I could have spoken to each one of these guys individually for hours. So I look forward to having all of them on the podcast again in the very near future in more of a long form kind of discussion because I think it would be fabulous for you guys. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. So with that being said, give it up for Amy Dressner, Jay Harris, and Cole Spooner. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. What is up, you guys? Thanks for joining us at the Enlightened Recovery Mindfulness Recovery Symposium. This is the Social Media Impact Panel, and I'm going to let you guys kind of introduce yourselves and let let our audience viewing remotely and our initial audience in front kind of who you guys are and why you're at the table. All right. So my name is Jay Harris. I'm a recovery ally and the program coordinator for East Carolina University's Collegiate Recovery Community. Okay. Uh, I'm Amy Dresner. I'm a columnist for uh, the addiction recovery magazine, The Fix. Uh, and I also am the author of a book called My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. And I'm Cole Spooner. I haven't 
written anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in good company here, I guess. Um, I started Survivor Culture, which is um, a support group for survivors of sexual assault. And I'm also a recovering alcoholic. Awesome. Nice to meet you guys. Thanks for volunteering to come up to, a, to the table and talk with us. Um, so the idea presented to us was impacts of social media and um, just reflecting like on my personal experience living remotely in Western North Carolina and taking somewhat of a non-traditional approach to recovery. I'm a member of the Refuge Recovery Fellowship. Oh, okay. And I have been since 2014, um, right after like the initial book came out. So there wasn't a whole lot of meetings out there there was probably like 20 meetings nationwide when i first started but what they did have is they did have um telephone meetings they had like call-in meetings mm -hmm. and they had uh video like social media type stuff so like my first initial uh dose of recovery and those first like relationships that i built were started via like facebook and like i i was kind of like the anti-social media guy like I stayed away from it um, all through the end of my active addiction because I was afraid of like what might pop up, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so like I, I took advantage of those opportunities. So like with that being said, um, my man Jay right here, he's super active in social media. Like I see him all the time. And so like the first question I wanted to ask you is like because you're doing collegiate recovery and you're trying to connect with somewhat of a younger generation most likely, like what – what have you found is like the best approach and how, how do you like generate interest in what you're doing on your college campus? Yeah. So that's a really good question. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is that's where students are, right? Like I think 85 or 88% of students, traditional age students are on social media. And it's the idea that, this is where they're getting the information from. It's where they're connecting and find out where the events are on campus are happening. So this is where they are. And we felt as creating a program like a collegiate recovery community that comes with its own stigmas and student people coming in with their own biases and all of these type of things. We had to show them what they were missing out on. And so whenever we have our programs or our events, we're throwing those out there on social media and really connecting with students and sometimes just starting that conversation about what recovery is right there um, in our Instagram DMs or on the comments, right, of, hey, this is really cool. Tell me more about this. And we're able to, you know, plug them in right then and there and invite them on to our next event or our next program. And so it's really about just connecting students where they already are, engaging them and meeting them where they are um, virtually, essentially where they are they're on social media yeah. so that's where you go cole talk about survivor culture and like what exactly it is that you guys do and how you engage with people who might be interested in what you have to offer sure okay well um primarily well we started on twitter and it was just myself and another survivor that were kind of bummed out about the way things were going with um with me too um, feeling like some people didn't feel like they belonged there mm -hmm. and um, just trying to figure out a more positive spin to put on it um, beyond just saying this happened to me. So what is going to happen next is kind of where we were looking. And um, so primarily we're on Twitter, but we also have an Instagram and we have a Facebook page and a bunch of other stuff too. Um, and 
through the Twitter, uh, we pretty much put out like news and we have a few chats available for people that can join. And we just um, got into Discord, which is like a by invite kind of chat thing. So other people can't, anyone who's not invited can't see the chat. But obviously on Twitter, we have chats that are open to the public. Like anyone who's a survivor can join in, talk about whatever subject is, is going on that week. Um, or really anything that they want to talk about. So it um, because it's so open and because we use survivor culture as our hashtag uh, for that, it generates a lot of traffic during those times when people are talking about pretty sensitive stuff. So it's kind of heavy, but it also gets the word out. And pretty much every time we have a, uh, a discussion on Twitter using that hashtag, we get a bunch of people who are really interested, first-time people talking, and um, that's kind of what my job has been during those times, is I can't even focus on the chat. I get DMs from people that are like, this happened to me too, I really need to talk about it right now, and all this stuff is coming up right now. So it's pretty awesome, like every every week we're having brand new people that are coming and saying, this happened to me, and, and finally getting some help. Do you have people that are like, that moderate the Discord, or are you kind of like, Doing most of it yourself. Yeah, we have two Discord moderators. Uh, we have two moderators for every chat that we have. So right now we have um, one Discord chat and we have two Twitter chats. So we got six people running it. That's super cool, man. Amy, I was listening to your audio book. I just shared that with you. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Super relatable. Uh, a couple of the things that kind of like stood out to me and knowing that we we're going to have this conversation is that like, you mentioned in the book how you might not have used social media in the most positive ways to like affect your life. What was that transition like to what like are you today? Talking You're talking like, about like Tinder and stuff oh like that. Oh God, right? Getting Tinder. on some of the Oof. dating sites on the book. Oof. So, Tinder. Yeah. God. Oh. So what was the um, progression like to what it is, <laughs> to what you use it for today? Well, Tinder, I, I mean, I don't think Tinder is the land of the soulmate seekers, just so. I mean, and if you're already sort of a, you know, a sex addict, it's it's uh, it's extremely dangerous. It's just too, it's like fast food. It's too easy. And uh, it got me into a lot of trouble and landed me in some, you know, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings and some Sex Addicts Anonymous meetings. Where I was the only girl. That was awesome. And I was the only one. You know, they were like, oh, woman, that's so wonderful. Come. And I just cried through the whole meeting. Um, eventually, that behavior, thank God, fell away through just me working on myself. Um, yeah, I don't touch that. I haven't yeah. touched that in years. Um, I had Twitter. You know, as a writer, I like words. And so Twitter was great. And then sort of Twitter sort of fallen off a little bit in popularity, I think. And now uh, my publisher was like, you have to have Instagram. And it's like, oh, okay. So my Instagram, I mean, I'm not, I don't love taking photos of myself. I'm not like the selfie queen. So there's a lot of pictures of my cat, Colonel Puff Puff. And everyone's like, that's not really good sort of like for your book. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I started to, I do have a Facebook official page and I have a Facebook page. And for me, um, what I find is effective on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is incredible honesty. Like, you know, I just, and also humor. Humor seems to cut through. Uh, I've gotten a lot of people DMing me about the book. Um, and uh, I noticed lately, the more 
really raw I am in what's going on with me in terms of like, hey, I'm terrified and self-loathing all the time and I still show up and do what I need to do and you can't do, it's no excuse. Everyone identified with me, you know what I mean? Like everyone loves when you say the thing that everyone's thinking that no one dares say. Um, and also just, you know, just jokes too. Like, oh yeah, great, five and a half years sober and I drank so much coffee I almost threw up. This moderation thing is going really well for me. You know what I mean? Like just having a joke about it. And so um, that's um, what I, I, I do with that. And so, uh, and I repost a lot of stuff that people post about the book. Like people have made like quotes of my book into memes and stuff, which is really kind of bizarre. It's like, it is. It's like really sort of weird. You know, yeah. you're like, oh, that's cool. Okay, sort of and terrifying, but okay. Um, so like retweeting and I'm not great at like hashtag stuff. I'm not, I'm old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta figure it out. Um, but a part of like the social media, I think is like what we were just talking about before we went live is that you've been doing a lot of like podcasts. A right? lot of podcasts. I was just on Dr. Drew, you know, like, I mean... I was on The Doctors, I was in Elle Magazine and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's like I just performed at She Recovers, performed, God, it was the <laughs> love. I was a stand-up for five years, pardon me. It's like those those words, it's, it's hard to let that stuff go. Um, I did a speech at She Recovers uh, for 500 women, and um, I just got a little bit of clips, and I threw them up there. And that seemed that people love videos. I, yeah. I don't know how to do a story. I mean, so maybe someone can show me after how you do a story on Instagram. I don't know. But Jay, my man Jay right here. Okay, okay. I mean, I stage. guess that's where story, stories <laughs> are where it's at. And I don't have no idea how to do a story. Um, but I was putting clips of those and it was like that did really well. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you have a, you're connected to a celebrity like the Dr. Drew podcast did really well. Bob Forrest, Don't Die. I did a bunch of those and put those stuff on and. All that kind of you stuff. You get some pretty significant feedback once you go on these podcasts, do these shows. I mean, people just love to laugh. They love my yeah. rawness. They love my really horrible stories, and uh, and they love that I have survived and given hope. I think I think that recovery is really serious, but I think uh, you know I think that it's important for people who who are thinking about getting into recovery that showing them that you can keep your sense of humor mm -hmm. and it's fun and you can have fun. You know, and for me, you know, I did a lot of really shameful stuff and I just am sort of like, I make fun of it now because I think that humor is a way to sort of diffuse the shame. You know, for me, shame just kept me relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. And there's just no, there's no recovery in being ashamed. It's yeah. like you did what you did and it's over and you do the best you can to amend it and you move forward. You know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. So let's move it on. Let's move on, you know. So I think a large part of like what kept me in that type of in that addictive kind of behavioral patterns was that I thought that I had to change completely. Like I thought that I wasn't able to be my true self and I would have to lose that humor that you talk about. Right. And I would have to like be that like born again person that, you know, and oh, I would how, how creepy lose no. my true identity. Yeah. And that's what appealed me to refuge recovery. Right. Jay, we were having this conversation this morning. Amy mentioned, um, the hits on her videos, right. right? We were talking about how when I started this podcast, I just wanted to be a podcast. I just wanted to like go in the studio, sit down for two hours with some good friends and have some intimate conversations and post them up and see where they go. And one of my buddies, like one of the first or second night, he threw it up on Facebook Live. And we got like literally 10 times the audience 
right. on video than we do of course. on the podcast. And that's not just like, that was not my vision. But I don't get to choose, you know, who my audience is. That's what they want, yeah. right? Yeah. So what have you noticed, Jay, in like your postings and kind of the, the approach that you use? Because you do get, you're on there, you're, you're active, and you are somewhat innovative in the way that you decide what, what goes up and how you engage with, you know, students. Yeah. So we're in a very visual stimulating world right now. And to sit down and listen to a 30 to 45 minute podcast for a lot of individuals, they feel like they don't have the time. But we're also very much where students are really engaged in Snapchat and Instagram Live and all of these very short clip in your face. This is the information. This is what you want me to see. This is the highlight reel. Give it to me and I can move on to the next thing. And so if you have a very engaging conversation like your podcast or like um, whatever it is that we're doing here, right? Um, if they can visually see you engaging in that, mm -hmm. they're more apt to stay there, right? There's the there's the Hulus and Netflix and Amazon Prime Video and all these things that have found a really unique way of getting um, individuals to sit in front of something for a moment of time. But it's visually stimulating as well as um, auditory stimulating, right? And so it's not just one or the other. Um, and so that's the piece. Instagram photos are visually stimulating, but they have no movement. They have no sound. And so, yeah, you'll get a like or a click here or there. But when you add video to that, instantly people start to connect with it differently. And they feel like they're missing out on something and want to be at the next event that you're doing. And do they, you get a pretty good, a solid turnout from those yes. initial engagements yeah. on your events? Um, we actually have um, one photo that I did of us doing a banner signing. So there's a photo of several students standing around this banner, signing the banner. They're really engaged and it's great. But there's another clip where there's an audio, about five seconds worth, and you see same students doing the signing the banner, but you can also hear the background mm -hmm. noise on campus of a particular one particular place on our campus that has these singing chimes at um, these arches that go into our library. And so looking at the photo, students are, they're signing a banner, great, whatever. But when you watch the video, you hear the chimes ringing, you hear students walking by, you hear the bicycles. And again, there's different stimuli there that people are engaging with and they go, oh, they're at the library. Maybe I'll walk by there and check it out. And then they sign the banner and, you know, so it gives you, Again, those multiple um, stimuli that really engage in a lot of ways that um, you just can't with the with the flat photo. Yeah, Cole, do you on your Discord and on your website do you pay attention to any like the how how in depth are you with like the analytics as far as when people are using your site and services? Are you paying attention to that? Yeah, we we do those um, at peak times mm -hmm. uh, we noticed that in the uk uh, there was a pretty there still is a pretty good um following of what's called um child sex abuse question time which in the uk like any program that's about anything is called question time like there's <laughs> prime minister's question time there's like gardener's question time <laughs> like this crazy question time so they they kind of labeled it after that and i i was following that for about a year until we we decided we were going to break into question time and of course we didn't name it question time anything but um we're not that much of a fangirl of them <laughs> i am a lot though <laughs> like they're amazing but um yeah they have it at a great time where it's just getting evening in the uk 
So it's getting dark in Europe. It's getting just about mm-hmm. dark in the UK, and it's just after work here. And um, on Pacific time, it's like 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, which seems to be just an amazing... It's like when most of the world is awake, mm. which is kind of odd. Mm. Um, and in Australia, it's like tomorrow at five in the morning which is crazy that we still get people who wake up then but i think that they like they must follow the rest of the world and be like well the internet's on we might as well get up early and you know get into it or whatever but but yeah like peak time is really important for those chats yeah i'm like a numbers guy so like anytime that we're even just posting the finished product of our show and posting different things like i'm all about like those peak times and i always like really pay attention to it um, but one of the other things that I noticed is that even though like I'll post it during like peak times, the majority of our downloads and when people are actually listening to the podcast are later on, like almost in the overnight, like 10 to one, two o'clock in the morning, East Coast time over here, um, because we are we are still a smaller audience base out of like typically western north carolina on into like the Asheville area um but a large number of the people who are downloading and then engaging in conversation in our like groups is kind of in those overnight hours like when there's not a whole lot going on and um they're like going towards a resource you know they're, they're looking for to continue that conversation they're looking for some sort of engagement um where are the opportunities in this I would say that the opportunity is really is stigma, stigma reduction yeah um, understanding recovery messaging language understanding how the language that we use and the language that we use on our media platforms influences what people are seeing and how they begin to start using language and start to change in their own language um, I actually have what I've started start calling with our students um, recovery messaging training changing the narrative. Um, you see the media and you see the TMZs, the CNNs, even ESPN, which is horrendous for a lot of times when a s- athlete is getting popped with a, um, a negative drug screen or positive drug screen or an arrest for a DUI. And they blow it all up and they throw it around and they create this really negative picture and you almost never see the other side of, you know, their recovery or what happens once they find the assistance they need to be successful. Um, but that's what's, that's what's dominating the airwaves. That's what's dominating social media and everywhere else. And so we have an opportunity as individuals in recovery or allies to speak out and kind of tell our stories in a way that gives a real human connection to the headlines that people often see. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I think to take it a step further, I think it's important to to focus on that language and to tell those stories to the people who need to hear it, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I'm, like, even the people that are tuning into my podcast or the people that I'm running with on campus and the people that I'm, you know, showing up to events and meetings with, they already know it, right? They're, they've already heard it. They've already, they're already doing it. But when I go home for Thanksgiving and I'm sitting at, at, on the beach in Florida with my family... That those are the people who need to hear it because they're gonna they're the ones that are gonna continue spreading that message, um, message on. So it I find it like I don't know I'm, I just like find it like I'm always around people in recovery. Yeah, like that's just, that's just 
because that's my life. So like, I don't very rarely do I have the opportunity to do that message, even though we are, you know, doing these podcasts and doing these live streams, you know, how many people that don't have any connection or interest to recovery are tuning into my, my show? Very few probably. Right. It's not, not as, um, accessible to some, to just, you know, the average person that hasn't been affected by addiction or isn't doing, um, doing the work. So, um, if, if I could just um, add to that, I think that's one of the great things about the social media platforms that we're using, especially Twitter, even though I think you're right, it right. is on it's the like, wane. But uh, the fact that what you put out there is just there. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I don't I don't, I guess, know the language enough to explain that, that when you put something out there, yeah, it goes to your followers and they see it. But because they retweet it and because it's just sitting there, it is a resource for people later to find. Like you were saying about um, your about the podcast, those chats. Like the next morning, I'll look. I'll I'll have said, "Well, that was kind of a uh, chat. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't the best for me." But um, the next morning, I'll look and I do a quick search of all the survivor culture chats that happened that day, and um, it'll be some random thing that I'm like how did that get so many RTs and like I carefully craft every tweet that I put out there and it'll be somebody just emoting about what happened to right. them that really lights mm -hmm. up and they send it to their friends and their friends send it to their friends mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you've got these people that are like what is survival culture can you can you tell me about that mm -hmm. and like I think that it leaves like breadcrumbs for people to find mm -hmm. Um, and as far as like changing the language is concerned, I mean, that's kind of what we're all, what we are all about is survivor culture is changing the language and the humor that we focus so much on, especially in this country is sexual aggression, that everything is like this rape culture around us. And we want it to be something, I, all of us, I think in this room, we get it, that we want that to change from this like addictive, terrible hurtful language to um like a message of caring about people and a message of taking care of one another whether you're a survivor or you're not a survivor whether you're recovering or you're not you just don't want to put that in somebody's face and hurt someone with it talk a little go a little bit more in depth on what that what that looks like what that what does survivor language look like like what does it sound like well, Can we you give us some more like specific examples. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we kind of label ourselves as the anti-rape culture. So if you can picture any example of rape culture, like a rape joke, for example, we hit that really hard with people. And we get a lot of trolling from people saying, you know, it's not a real rape. It was just a joke. And you it's dirt. It feels dirty to explain to somebody. Why do you think that raping is like, why do you think that's funny? Like, and the minute you get into that, or why do you think that having sex with, using your words, which is rape of a child or anybody, why do you think that that's funny? <laughs> then they start to back away and go, well, yeah, yeah, that's not really what I meant. Okay, but you said that. So let's talk about why do you think that's funny? I don't really think it's funny. Uh, okay, <laughs> so now we're like, we're getting somewhere. And um, do those conversations ha do those conversations happen often, or is it a lot of like pushback? It it actually does happen okay. very often. That's, that's beautiful man. because we go out and we'll look for a tweet or we'll look for a news story. Like, um, let's see, 
I'd say like CNN is pretty classic for uh, school teacher seduced a 12 year old. They use that language like, no, they didn't. They didn't seduce anybody. Like seduction happens at a peer level. Mm. You groomed a child. So that's something that's illegal. Like you're not supposed to be grooming a child for sex or anything else. And then you went ahead and actually raped them. So there, there's two serious crimes that happened and you're just calling it seduction. That's not cool. So someone will call that out. They'll tweet to CNN. They'll tweet to like their local channel and they'll just put it out there to everybody. And it makes a huge wave of interest in this idea that, yeah, we don't need to be talking like that. And that's just, it's completely inappropriate. But when you don't call it out, no one, you know, no one thinks that. And the fact that it's happening, not just in English, like English is the language of the world at this moment, but it's happening in every culture and every language, which is why I'm an interpreter. And so I'm really fascinated by language. And, um, when I realized that it took, it took me way too long to realize, why don't we be doing this in a couple other languages? And we've, we got to 10 since we started scaling up languages, which was three months ago. We started adding languages and we, um, we hit American Sign Language and the big three, French, German, Spanish, and a couple of Scandinavian languages and things like that. So we're up to 10 now. But that's happening and changing, hopefully changing the discourse and the language. What is next for social media? Like, what's on the forefront? What's what's up and coming? What do we have to look forward to? VR, AI. What's where are the opportunities? What could you know? Like, I've often thought about like, I don't know, virtual reality, AA meetings, refuge recovery meetings. Like, what would that look like? You know, I don't have to leave my house. I can just like meditate in virtual reality with my sangha and. Yeah, really, like, it, it's coming. That stuff's coming, man, like, reality I thought, is... I thought you were going to throw me under the bus regarding language. You want me to address my take on language? And Yeah, you're totally welcome to. Okay. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is NC Raw. Uh, so, I fought very hard to with my publisher to not have the word recovery on my book because I think that it's very much an inside baseball term, and I thought that it would not attract people who were using, and I thought that it would be off-putting to a lot of people. I wanted my book to be as broad as it could. And I thought, you know, recovery is it's going to be stuck in like, you know, a 12-step store. And I did actually just have a signing at a 12-step store. So careful what you make fun of. Um, but, uh, you know, I've gotten a little bit of flack for using the word junkie um, because that's not PC anymore. And I guess as a comic and as a writer, I don't really enjoy people telling me what words I can use. And I certainly don't like people telling me what words I can use to you to tell my story. So I didn't think my fair girl with substance use disorder was going to like fly off the shelves, you know, like, and it's like, you know, having written for editorial for s almost seven years, if it bleeds, it leads. Like you got to grab people's attention. Um, I wrote a piece for The Fix, and so I got some, there was some recovery advocates who refused to let me say the name of my book. There was a Canadian podcast who was afraid to even put my book on their, on, uh, on their Facebook page and all of that kind of stuff. And there are other people who actually bought the book because it said junkie, you know, and they were like, oh, my, pe my people, like this speaks to me. 
So I think words are important, but I also think that um, what's behind the word is really what's important. You know, it's it's intention. And um, uh, I think that what's going to break the stigma is not so much the language regarding like saying substance use disorder. That's great for insurance companies to bill and all that kind of stuff. I don't know one recovering drug addict or alcoholic who says I have substance use disorder. Not one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think giving it a polished up name and treating it as precious actually increases the stigma around it um, instead of owning it sort of like, I, I, you know, I follow sort of like the gay movement and, and taking ownership of the word and making it mine, a word that's been used against me and I take it back and I use it. Um, you know, I uh, wrote a piece about it for The Fix and I talked to an addictionologist, a psychiatrist who owned a rehab and is also sober and he said, you know, the PCism of substance use disorder. He said even when he was in his his heaviest drinking and using, he did not uh, meet the guidelines for substance use disorder. So, and when I was just on Dr. Drew, I asked him what he thought about it, and he thought it was like PC bullshit. Yeah. And so I think also what I think what upsets me the most is that other people in the recovery culture are attacking me for my own narrative which is what allows me to lessen my shame. So I think what the people that are attracted to my book are the fact that I just own it, throw it out there. What's going to, you know, they say, oh, well, the wor wording is important. I'm sorry, you know, substance use disorder sounds very scientific. AIDS sounded very scientific. Autoimmune deficiency disorder. People were still freaked out by that whole thing. There was still a stigma against it until when? AIDS awareness. AIDS rides, people owned it, and it wasn't a death sentence anymore. For So for me, I think it's stories of hope and recovery and the fact that this is super widespread that's going to break the stigma, not specifically, you know, changing the wording. Yeah. I think it's all about how, how you deliver it and what's behind it. Yeah, I mean, saying that, I someone called me a crazy crackhead bitch, and I was very pissed off. So it's <laughs> like, you know, I can call myself that, but I don't like, you know, uh -huh. other people calling me that. I want to just make that clear. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but, Sorry um, about that. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, thanks, thanks for doing that earlier. Um, so... Um, I think that, I, and again, I think there's rooms for a lot of narratives, and I think what's so important for us, and I talk about, um, I have this in my speech, is inclusivity within the recovery movement. Like whether you're 12-step or rec a refuge recovery or smart recovery or harm reduction or abstinence-based or whatever you are, like we're all moving towards the same goal. And I think that the splintering that's happening in the community now regarding you know, this is the only way, or you're not sober if you're da-da-da-da. I think that's extraordinarily harmful, you know, that there's one way and this is it. It becomes very fundamentalist, and I think that that's very, to me, as, as someone, as a, as, as a former addict who's sort of a rebel, that to me is very off-putting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about changing culture, and I think what anytime we're trying to change culture, it, it, it just, it's something that takes persistent, effort and it's going to take a long time before we absolutely get to that point um but people like yourself and being so open about it and people like cole and what you guys are doing i think that ecu has worked really hard on defining recovery yeah yeah um we actually have gone back and forth about this a lot um we were actually one of the first kind of harm reduction collegiate recovery communities um in the country and 
caught a lot of flack from it. Um, individuals mm. within the collegiate recovery uh, world, as well as the recovery world as a large, really was not on board with it. Lots of collegiate recovery communities were very much 12-step. And, like, I get it, right? Like, what saved your life saved your life. And there's nothing that I can say to you that will change that or say to me that I will maybe change my mind in some ways or another. But at the same time as... You know, she just said, we're all in this fight together and we're out here to save lives. And so whatever we can do to create a more welcoming and a wholesome environment for individuals to, quote unquote, get better, let's figure that out and move forward. And I really like what the um, Recovery Science Research Collaborative has kind of defined as their definition of recovery, which is recovery is an individualized, intentional, dynamic and relational process involving the sustained efforts to improve wellness. Nice. And, you know, that's, as I like to say, you know, there's a lot of individuals who are on the recovery spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that's everything Mm -hmm. from complete abstinence to understanding that some substances are harmful and lead to whatever. And then there's others that you can use socially or use when, you know, to self-medicate or whatever that might look like. And it's not causing issues and causing things to go haywire in your world. And for ECU specifically, we're okay with that because we're all about developing the student as a person and figuring out what's going to lead them to their next best right decision when it matters the most. There you go. Sustained efforts to improve wellness. Nice. I love that. I dude. love that. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, totally love that. you know, I'm in 12 step, but I'm also, I write a lot of pieces attacking a lot of uh, the things and I get, you know, you know, it's like then there, there's a, a whole flame war breaks out between the, you know, people are like, she's too AA. And other people are like, she's not AA enough. And it's like, I'm representing myself. And it's like, there are things about AA that are amazing. And there are things that are very, very out, outdated, in my opinion. And I dare to say that. And people flip out. And it's like, you know what? I don't care. You know, you have to. I, I mean, I never considered myself a recovery advocate. I considered myself a writer, and I wrote a, bo- a memoir about my story. And I never was thinking about – I never read the comments on any of my pieces because I don't want to write what people want me to write, and I don't want to be afraid to write my truth. It's like, you don't agree with me? Cool. That's – you know, we all can have opinions about this. But um, I think that, like you said, like I had I had a sponsee, and she was – doing something that they would consider was breaking her sobriety. And I said to her, I think you need to start your time over. And she said, if I have to start my time over, I'm going to go smoke meth. I'm not going to start my time over because I was abusing Benadryl. And my sponsor said, keep her in the room. You know, a lot of times people need know where they need to be before they're ready to be there. And it's steps. And it's like, you know, I mean, I'm on medications for epilepsy that I, I gave myself epilepsy with crystal meth. And I'm on medications where really hardcore people in 12-step would say, well, you're not sober. It's like, well, you don't have to wear a helmet for the rest of your life. Like, I don't, you know, that is sober. And it's like, we all have, I think everyone's recovery is different, just like their addiction is different. There isn't a one-size-fits-all. You know, if that doesn't work for you, cool, go find something that works for you. You know, I think that it's gotten very, like, it's our way. And that's extraordinarily dangerous. That's like my vision for this podcast, is to, like, talk about those multiple pathways mm-hmm. and more importantly like talk to our guest whether they're you know pick, just picked up their white chip last night or they've been doing it for 25 right. years how do you define your recovery today right and then how has it evolved right. over those right. years because i was like that person in early recovery that i i held to my fixed views of course of 
be at refuge recovery, but I held to those fixed views because it worked for me. Of course. I experienced the relief from the madness that was going on. And as I have continued to do that over time, my recovery has evolved to where I'll sit down at a table with my co-host who is involved in a 12 step fellowship and talk about that. Four years ago, I wouldn't even acknowledged him. Right. Right. Because we were doing different things. And, um, now it has evolved to sitting down with people like you guys and having right. these intimate conversations and finding out what works for you. Um, how can we help you define what it is and then allow it to evolve together and then share that out? Right. You know what I mean? I wish harm reduction worked for me, but it just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. like, <No>. I just, <laughs> my no. idea of harm reduction like was, you know, shooting cocaine in a bike helmet. That was my idea of harm reduction. So, you know, it's just, I couldn't. Hey, you're I just, still here today, right? Yeah, you know, I just, I'm not, I'm someone who abuses everything mm-hmm. completely. So I can't, I can't. So, and I know that about myself, but there are other people who are, like you said, there's a spec, there's a spectrum of recovery and there's also a spectrum of addiction. Mm-hmm. There are people who just like abuse everything and they start, you know, they pick up and that vortex opens and they're on and their life falls apart. And there are other people who are super functional. My idea of functional when I was using was like, oh, I took a shower, you know, like that was it. You know, when I when I hear people like, well, I took a, you know, I was going to law school and I'm like, what? You know, like, I don't get it. Like, that's, I was not functional. So it's like, you know, again, I think it has to be inclusivity. It has to be, a, we have to be unified in this, you know, and allow allow tolerance for other viewpoints and say, hey, if that's working for you, that's awesome, yeah. you know? Yeah, my view on it has totally shifted to where, like, not only do I, does it, there has to be room for other viewpoints, but I want to know what they are. Right. Like, I'm, I have interest in them now, whereas in the beginning I didn't. I was just like... I'm doing but that's fear-based. Yeah. Yeah. That's fear-based. Like, this is working for me, and I don't want to hear anything else. And, huh, yeah. you know, that's fear-based. It totally did. So um, definitely I'll, has I like that. This, too, though, I think it's very important that um, we get to a point in society and our mental health system where a treatment center taking a bus full of folks to a 12-step meeting and saying, this is going to be your recovery when you leave here. It's the only way out. That's not it. I agree. You know, if they're going to have a bus system to go to, to a meeting, have several buses sometimes to go to different meetings so that individuals that. can get a buffet of what's out there in a variety. I agree And with that. not having just this one mindset because that might not work for everyone. And then what do you do when they're back in front of you again in six months to a year because they graduated treatment, but they're back in your face again? Yeah. Like they don't have those sustainable supports around right. them. Yeah, there are people who don't connect to 12-step and then they they feel like using is the only other option or white-knuckling it on their own and they're not, you know, and I think that that's, you know, it's become the basis of a lot of treatment centers and it's like that's, I mean, even though I am 12-step, I think that that's totally wrong. Do you think that it's because it's lack of education of what's going on? No, in I think it's because just... I think it's because there's at least in Los Angeles there's 2,000 AA meetings a week. Yeah. It's the most popular one. That's why it's the most. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're gonna take a bus full, take the druggy buggy as they call it when you're in rehab. I've been in six treatment centers. You know, it's like they don't want to. They don't want to take. You know, that's that's drivers, that's vans, that's gas. They don't want to take some to smart, you know, recovery and others to refuge recovery and others to yoga and others to da 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 and some to 12 step meetings. It's like this is it, guys, you know, and it's like, you know, so it's like it's, it's just easier. I think it's, it's more monetarily, you know. And that's where the that's where the system has to get. Better and it's the and most popular. It, it is the most popular. But I know a lot of people where they just don't feel connected to it. 
And it's like, that's cool. You know, my mother's been my mother's been sober for 40 years and she, all she does is meditate twice a day. That's it. And it was like when I first got into 12 step, I was like, well, you're not sober. You're just dry. Meh. And I thought, honey, she has, you know, 40 years. You can't get a year. Like put a cork in it, Amy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're judging her like she's got she's got something, you know. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Are you meditating now? I was meditating, but it made me feel too good, so I stopped. Isn't that, isn't <laughs> yeah. that alcoholic? That's so alcoholic. This is working, so I'm going to stop. Yeah. I need to get back. Yeah. Cole, plug your stuff, man. Plug your website. Plug your page. Where, where can people find you? Yeah, everything is Survivor Culture. Survivor hashtag culture. Survival Country. Yes. Survival culture. Survival culture. Uh, hashtag survival culture. Um, survival culture IG for Instagram. <laughs> and I think it's official right. survivor culture on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a little hard for me to get. But. <laughs> Amy, book, stuff, going uh, on? My Instagram? Uh, my Fair Junkie. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's everywhere. Uh, I think Amazon's the best because they have the... They have the Kindle. They have the audio version. You can hear my manly voice and my bad impressions. It's terrific. Uh, the paperback just came out. I'm Amy Dresner on Twitter. I'm Amy Dresner official. So stupid, right? On Facebook. I'm Amy Dresner on uh, Instagram. I have a website, amydresner.com, where you can hear all my podcasts, see all my articles, you know, events, things like that. Awesome. EC, you have any events taking place anytime soon? Um, November 12th. Um, Todd Zalskins, the long way back documentary. Todd I just Zalskins. did his podcast. I love him. <laughs> yes, he'll be back at ECU with us November nice. 12th. Um, but you can definitely find us, ECU underscore CRC, both Twitter and Instagram, uh, Facebook, East Carolina University's Collegiate Recovery Community, and then also the Association for Recovery and Higher Education's website, collegiaterecovery.org. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you guys for sitting down with us. I look forward to talking to you guys a little bit further. I would highly suggest the audiobook because she's just as animated as she is uh, up here. So thank you guys for listening to us. You can find all of our stuff at ncraw.life and it's at WNCRaw on all those social media things. So thanks for checking us out, guys.